Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in Angular. This is actually a recording that we did a few years ago with Brendan Ike. Uh, he talks about the origins of JavaScript, and we did this for JavaScript Jabber. But I thought that you folks on Adventures in Angular would be interested in it. So I'm going to go ahead and let the recording switch over. And uh, yeah, go out and check out some of the stuff that I've got going on these days um, with getacoderjob.com. If you're looking for a job, uh, go check out codebadge.org. If you are interested in some of the guided learning and staying current stuff that we're doing there. And uh, always devchat.tv, swag.devchat.tv if you want a shirt or a pillow, or we've got all kinds of stuff on there, a mug with the Adventures Angular stuff on it. Anyway, I'll go ahead and uh, have the editor switch us over now. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 124 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Hey, everyone. Aaron Frost. Hello. AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from Boston. Jameson Dance. Hey, friends. Tim Caswell. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, Brendan Ike. Hello. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick for us, Brendan? Hi, I, I perpetrated JavaScript in 1995, and I've been making up for it ever since. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Still perpetuating the lie. That's awesome. Awesome. So we brought you on to talk about kind of where JavaScript came from. I'm kind of curious to know, just for my own edification, I have clients and others who ask me all the time, so you do Java? And so I want to know why it was called JavaScript for one. But yeah, maybe you can kind of uh, give us a little bit of backstory on JavaScript. Yeah, that whole story, I think, is totally worth telling, even though I'm sure you've told it a hundred times. I know that I'd been doing JavaScript for quite a while before I finally heard the story of how JavaScript was created, so I'd love to hear it again. Once upon a time. Yeah, you guys should cut me off because it'll go on and on. So the thing you have to know about Netscape is it was a Jim Clark, Mark Andreessen joint. So it was basically the union of NCSA Mosaic principles plus Lou Montuli from University of Kansas, who did the Lynx browser. I think that was spelled L-Y-N-X, which was a text-based browser. But everybody else at Netscape on the first floor was either from NCSA Mosaic or NCSA HTTPD. They were all at the National Center for Supercomputer Applications at my alma mater, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. So Mark Andreessen recruited there heavily, and he paired up with Jim Clark, the founder of Silicon Graphics. So I was at Silicon Graphics out of grad school in 1985, which was great. It was pre-IPO. It was a hot valley company. This was back when you had technical Unix workstation companies building their own, basically, CPUs or building their own CPU boards around the Motorola 6820 or 6830 chip. And Sun and other companies had licensed the Stanford University Network Sun One architecture. And Andreas Bechtelsheim had given up his... PhD to go found Sun with Bill Joy and others. It was a pretty awesome time in the Valley. It was before the PC. The PC was out. There was the 8088 um, or 8086. There was IBM PC, but it was kind of a joke. So for real industrial computing, you needed a workstation or a mini computer even. There were still mini computers around then. Digital Equipment Corporation was a thing then. And SGI was turned into a company from a Stanford research project Jim Clark was the professor of, which was building basically what became the GPU. They were building the graphics processing unit as a whole graphics board using VLSI technology. You know, Carver Mead at Caltech had written the book. People could make lots of transistors on a single silicon die. 
and they could build something that was really good at doing lots of, of graphics operations in parallel. And that's where Silicon Graphics came from. But by the time the 90s came along, Clark was, I think, kind of squeezed out of management politics at SGI. He was kind of the chairman, but not otherwise empowered. He was annoyed. So he wanted to do something new. And I'm not sure exactly how, but he got introduced to Mark Andreessen at NCSA. There might have been some venture capitalists involved there. And they hit it off, and they thought about doing something, which became Netscape. And the weirdest thing was they went through various ideas. I only know of one that I heard about they were serious about for a few days or weeks, which was let's build Nintendo 64 software for modem-connected N64 boxes. And that wasn't looking too <laughs> good after a few days, so they decided, no, let's, let's go make the Internet commercially viable. Let's kill Mosaic by making a Mosaic killer browser which will be the killer app, which will actually have security for commercial e-commerce. And that's what they did. That was Netscape 1, 1, 1. They did things like SSL. They did Kill Mosaic. They took all its market share. They originally were called MCOM, not Netscape, Mosaic Communications. Mm -hmm. And I think NCSA's lawyers came calling. And there was a rapid rename to Netscape. And of course, when they were founded, because they had Clark as a co-founder, he drew from Silicon Graphics early talent. So he drew Tom Paquin to manage engineering and Kip Hickman, who was my senior partner when I joined SGI out of grad school as a kernel hacker. And Kip called me up while I was at MicroUnity Systems Engineering, which is a crazy company I'll tell you about later. And Kip said, you want to come join us? It'll be fun. We're going to do a you know mosaic killer. And I said, oh, I've still got some things to finish at, at MicroUnity. So I stayed a year like an idiot. And uh, missed out being on the first floor. So I joined in April 1995, a year into Netscape. When I came on board, Netscape 1.1 was heading toward release. And because of some weird financial shenanigans, they couldn't hire me into the group they wanted to hire me into. They had tempted me there, all these Silicon Graphics people I knew, like Kip and John Genandrea. They said, come and do Scheme in the browser. We need a programming language in the browser. Come and do Scheme. And Scheme was like a language that I only learned through like book learning, through Sussman and Steele's SICP, famous book, Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs. Did you and, like it though? Like, did you go, I like Scheme, I'll go do that. Yeah, I said, <laughs> big idiot me, I said, I like Scheme, I'll go do that. And of course, when I got there, the answer was, oh, well, wait, we're doing a deal with Sun, and they have something called Java, renamed from Oak, and we can't really let you do Scheme in the browser now. <laughs> Plus, because of financial machinations I don't fully understand to this day, they hired me into the server team instead of the client team. <laughs> so that was weird. And they ended up having me work on HTTP 1.1, or what we thought would be HTTP 1.1, way back then in April 1995. It had a lot in common with Speedy. And I was working with the McCool twins, Rob McCool and Mike McCool, who wrote NCSA HTTPD, which then forked into Apache. And they were fun to work with. And Ari Lewitonen, who worked on the, the proxy server that Netscape productized. So for a month, I was screwing around with server-side stuff, but I was thinking about what to do to rescue the idea of a language for the browser, which wouldn't be Scheme. And so in May, I got switched to the client team finally. They got a, a headcount opened. I mean, even in a company of 150 people, they had headcount shortages and, and little games where people had to trade requisitions. So I ended up in May starting hitting ground the running, really moving fast to create JavaScript. And it was codenamed Mocha. I wish I kept a diary, but I, I can tell you that involved intense uh, meetings with people like Mark Andreessen, not only at Netscape, but also at the Peninsula Creamery in Palo Alto, where they had like greasy burgers, fries, milkshakes. And at that point, Mark was, he was, he was a big boy. <laughs> We used to go there and get, you know, he used to like Midwest food. He got, he got a milkshake. He'd drink milk at work. There was a lot of junk calories being consumed. And Netscape also had something I was horrified to learn about that has become standard in the Valley, which is the sleeping room. So Tom Paquin, the engineering first floor manager, would take the sheets home every other day to get cleaned, which was Oh, good. no. <laughs> but people were actually horrible. sleeping at work. And I was actually working around the clock because I realized in order to do – what became JavaScript, I had to not only show that we could make a language work in the browser, I had to show that it wasn't redundant with respect to Java, which was the big deal with Sun that was brewing that led to this whole, oh, sorry, we didn't really mean scheme in the browser. We're doing something with Java. And 
the best I could pull off was, okay, so you have a language, Java, which is compiled. You have to learn what a compiler is. You have to run Java C. You have to write Java source code, which consists of classes, including a class with a main method, and you have to, a static method, and you have to compile that into bytecode. Right there, you've lost a lot of people who could write programs if they were written in an interpreted language. If they were in Microsoft stack at the time, they could use Visual Basic, and they wouldn't have to learn C++. But with Netscape and Sun cobbling up this deal, it was only Java, and it was this compiled language. It was kind of hard to use. It was typed. Uh, I'm not saying it was bad. It was just not for the casual amateur or beginner programmer. Can, so, I, can I do a timeout and ask you yeah, a question? Yeah, absolutely. Did they come at you and say, Brandon, you have a hard stop in 10 days? Yeah. Or did the 10 days thing just be like, I worked on it for 10 days and we had the initial prototype? Or did someone say to you, you got 10 days, otherwise this is dead? Or, well, what's the 10 days thing? So, so the thing that happened was, as you might gather from the story, so far they were trying to do a deal with Sun for Java. Sun thought Java should be the only language they realized that it was too hard to use for amateurs and beginner programmers. They needed a language like Visual Basic and Microsoft Stack at the time. They needed JavaScript. And Mark Andreessen saw this clearly. So he and I were, were partnered up. That's why we met, we would meet up at the Pencil Creamery in secret, and we would plot our own destiny independent of whatever Sun was going to do with Java. And if we hadn't done that, there wouldn't be any easy-to-use language that you could embed right in the HTML. I remember Mark specifically said, no, you've got to be able to write the language, the source code, right in the HTML. You've got to be able to write it directly in there inside some kind of container tag. And so I went off and figured out how to make that work, which was horrendous because HTML, supposedly based on SGML, but its own sort of grammar, doesn't have the ability to embed like a less-than operator in the middle of a, a tag unless you use a special content model for that that element. And so I, I figured all that out. I made the script tag. I made it all work. But it was really a rush, not 10 days dead reckoned, but pretty damn quite fast in order to prove not only to Netscape, but the Sun. And there were people inside Netscape who doubted that there was a value in having a easy to use language you could embed directly in HTML that amateurs could write and that it could be done quickly enough that it could be shipped in the same release that Java was shipping in. So and that release was Netscape 2. So we could have wound up with Java. I love you even more now. That's all I yeah. have to say. If it was only Java, <laughs> the fact is Java bombed in the client. It took forever to die, but it's pretty much dead. It's like a source of malware. Chrome and, and <laughs> Firefox blacklisted. It, it, it's, it's, it's gone. So it wasn't called JavaScript. Was it called LiveScript? Is that... Originally, Mark wanted to call it Mocha. Okay. And Mark actually... <laughs> I'll tell you something I haven't told anybody. So Mark was actually not sure about Sun. So he thought... Maybe we should do our own Java VM. So Kip Hickman, my my friend from early days at SGI, who was a senior kernel hacker when I hired, he started writing his own JVM. And this was before we had done a source license for Sun's Java virtual machine. So he started writing his own. He was trying to self-host the Java C compiler that Arthur Van Hoff wrote, which is written in Java, very nice compiler written in Java. So if Kip's VM could run it, we could conceivably do our own Netscape VM. It wouldn't be the Sun VM. It would run Java and then we'd be independent of Sun. And Mark was so ambitious, he thought, okay, we'll have Kip's JVM, we'll have your JavaScript VM, now we need a graphics library, like for Canvas, for 2D and 3D graphics. Who can we get to do that? And I said, uh, I work with somebody really smart at, at SGI, I'd like to hire him, but he's at MIT, being a grad student, and that's Andrew Myers, who's now a professor at Cornell. And so Mark's like, great, we'll hire him, you know, we'll throw stock at him. <laughs> So there was this grand plan, which never came to fruition, where we would have an entirely Netscape-created code base. It would be Kip's Java VM, my JavaScript VM, and, and Andrew Myers, whom we never hired, graphics library. And so that lasted a few weeks. Also, when the rubber hit the road, what we had to ship was the JavaScript VM wedged into Netscape 2 in a way that actually embedded in HTML. You could have a script tag with inline content that was code including the less than operator, you could then access like document.links sub zero or document.form sub one or document.forms.myform. And so I, I created this primitive version of the DOM that became known as the DOM level zero all in those early days. And the worst part of it was that Netscape, the browser, which was written the previous year in 1994 in six months, as Jamie Zawinski has described, in order to kill Mosaic fast, was not designed to have a scripting language embedded into it. 
because when you write JavaScript, you can extend the lifetime of a you know a form. You can make a reference to document form sub zero, and suddenly you can keep that alive longer in the document. Well, what happens inside the old Netscape browser code was as soon as you navigated away from that page, they freed all that memory. They 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 just wiped it out, returned it to the the C malloc heap, and if you kept pointers to it, you were in big trouble as far as vulnerability to crashes, security bugs all sorts of things. So I was juggling with chainsaws trying to embed this arbitrary lifetime scripting language into a sort of mandatory lifetime, just so lifetime C code base. And that meant Netscape 2 was a, a nightmare of bugs. But in spite of that, to finish my statement before I run on too long, there were people using it, even in the beta releases, who were doing amazing demos. They would they would write forms inside tables, and they would write spreadsheets or calculators or various sort of form-based applications, even what we might call single-page applications today. They didn't have XHR, but they could hide a form element or a link that they would auto-submit or auto-click inside a hidden frame. And they made it all work, and I had to help them on workarounds because there were tons of bugs. And they, they were like, I have a demo next Monday, and I'm going to get my contract canceled if I can't demo. Can you help me? And I said, okay. I figured out a workaround, and I gave it to them, and they delivered it, and that helped JavaScript prosper. So hmm. it sounds like, did you have kind of a vision of, of the potential of JavaScript? It seems like in the last five years, it's, well, more than that, maybe last 10 years, it, it started to come of age more and become more widely recognized as a platform for building mature applications. Did you always hope that would happen and, and think that would happen, or did it kind of happen as a surprise to you? So, yeah, you're talking about Web 2.0 or the Ajax revolution. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, the, some of the stuff you described sounds like that happened in the early days, too. It did. In 1995, early adopters, and I can't claim sole credit for this, like a guy named Bill Dorch, who's still online. He had a company called Idaho Design, like Idaho with an H in front. And he built all these essentially single-page applications using frames and frame sets, hidden forms or links. He even wrote like image generation using the XBM image format, which is the X bitmap format, which is an anti-compressed image format. It uses a subset of the C programming language, including the C preprocessor, to specify like a char array initializer containing the bits of the image. It's a crazy yeah. format. And he would generate this from JavaScript and load it using the right mime type into image elements in the DOM, the primitive DOM level zero, and suddenly you get these like black and white drawings you could, you could create. It's like an early canvas. So this was all like 95, 96, dodging lots of bugs. One of the bugs was, was funny. It was HTML tables, as you might know, can nest. And so Eric Bina, who I liked a lot, I really worked well with him. He was Mark Andreessen's coding partner. He was the real programmer on NCSA Mosaic, and then he joined Netscape. His layout engine was was very brute force about tables. It would basically do a table layout by laying out its contents, measuring the widths that you got from or the heights that you got from the widths, measuring how much space it needed, and then laying out the the parent table. And so, if you nest tables like n levels deep, you get two to the n passes to do all this this sort of measurement. And so, when I integrated JavaScript into that, I didn't realize this. So I started saying, okay. I'm going to put a callback here in the middle of Eric's layout routine. It creates a form element, and I'm going to create a JavaScript peer object to match that element. It will be the peer of that internal C data structure. Unfortunately, because he was doing table layout repeatedly to measure things, I get two to the N of these things. But I also realized because HTML at the time had no restriction on the name element, you could have things named foo three or five or a hundred times in the same document that I would automatically array them. So if you said one foo, you get a singleton. If you said two, you get an array of two elements named foo. And, and three would just append to that array. And so totally accidentally, his layout multipass two to the n characteristic interacted with my JavaScript automatic arraying to create a form element that was a, basically an array of individual form elements. Only the last one was the real one. The rest were all sort of throwaways used for measuring the table dimensions. And so this particular contractor I mentioned who was saying, I've got a demo on Monday. I'm going to get fired if I can't do it. He couldn't make the element come to life. And I said, oh, you're using like the, the first element or using the, the array. That's not the one to use. You want to actually dive, drill down one level deeper and go to length minus one element. That's the real element. And when he did that, and suddenly it started responding and showing that it was the real element, you could actually change its attributes and have it have effects on the presentation. 
he was like overjoyed, and so was I. So you know, there's a real kick in helping people get get workarounds to these things. <laughs> That's fine. That's awesome. That's awesome. Did any of these workarounds become enshrined into the language, and then you regretted them later? Uh, yes, <laughs> many of them. <laughs> I mean, you, you can't avoid some of the sort of DOM level zero stuff is is codified in HTML5 thanks to the work in the WhatWG that we started with Apple and Opera when I was at Mozilla in 2004. And some of it has been warped through the IE4 lens. But a lot of the early stuff's there, like the name attribute instead of the ID attribute we all know from more modern HTML came via XML. The name attribute is kind of funky, and you can get sort of automatic arraying of things, like um, radio buttons automatically array. And I'm not sure if the, the old property that all form elements automatically become arrays if there's multiple instances with the same name is still there. But that was there then, and that was part of the workaround I mentioned. The vision I had, though, was bigger. I, I had maybe a few weeks while I was still on the server team sort of thinking ahead, trying to plan, because I knew I was going to transfer to the client team. And I thought, how could I make JavaScript and demonstrate its value against Java and get it into the, the browser really fast? And I thought, how can I make it easy to use for beginners? Because that was the big pitch that Mark Andreessen and I, also Bill Joy of Sun, Microsystems, who signed the trademark license in December, December 4th, I believe, that gave Netscape the right to call it JavaScript instead of LiveScript. The Mocha name was allegedly contested because there's software that uses Mocha in some sort of name. And so Netscape chickened out on Mocha, and they hired somebody who liked LiveScript. And that was a lame name, in my opinion. And so what they really wanted was to call it JavaScript. And they finally got the license through Bill Joy. And what Bill Joy and Mark Andreessen and I all saw was you have to make this really simple for beginners. And so did you even want it to look like Java, which is a C-like language? I started looking at languages like Logo and Smalltalk and Self and HyperTalk, which was Bill Atkinson's language for HyperCard. What, of course, about, what I, about Visual Basic? Visual Basic, no. <laughs> I, I knew basic from when I was a teenager and I, a friend had a like a Commodore pet and he wrote a, like a, a Star Wars trench game. It was like a 2D vector graphics trench game where you're like flying down the Death Star trench trying to shoot at the exhaust port. And I knew basic, but I didn't think that would that would work in the modern era. And I was attracted to self in particular because it was taking ideas in small talk and simplifying them, trying to minimize the number of concepts and then maximize their utility. And that was, you know, David Unger and company, and it was was good work. They also did optimizing a powers for it, which they found a company out of Stanford about called Anamorphic. And I actually, a few years later at Netscape did, on loan to Sun, did some due diligence when Sun acquired Anamorphic. And Anamorphic had Lars Bach and others as like the, the young programmers doing all the heavy lifting for the senior people like Dave Unger and Craig Chambers on what became the, like the self of classes Jitting VM and the Strong Talk VM, which was small talk with, with types. Uh, Galad Braca did the work on the type system. Eventually that open sourced and that led to V8, if you can believe it or not. From the names I've dropped, you probably can believe it. So there's a lineage here that goes from JavaScript through Java, because Lars went to Sun and worked on, Lars Bach went to Sun and worked on the Hotspot VM to JavaScript in V8. And now to Dart. But long story short, there was a, an idea in JavaScript that I was pursuing, and maybe a few others saw it too, of a language that wasn't C-like. It was easy to use. It was meant for people who were building things inductively. They were learning programming for the first time. And they didn't necessarily have to know about where semicolons had to go or even curly braces. I lost the curly brace front. On the semicolon front, I said, it's ridiculous to reject a program because of a missing semicolon. We should do some kind of error correction procedure. So I made one up on the spot, and that became automatic semicolon. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of hacked this in, and it stayed. Yep. And 15 years <laughs> later, awesome. people are still That's fighting every over programmer's it. nightmare, It's right? so true. Just the I felt a sudden tremor in the force, as if a thousand semicolons suddenly screwed up everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, there are definitely some issues there, but in fact, I remember Jamie Zawinski was writing some JavaScript, and he had a long return expression, so he put it on the next line with no semicolon after the return. He was outraged that ASI would insert a semicolon after the return, making the return return the undefined value, and the next line becomes dead code, a useless expression. It's unreachable in the control flow of that function. He was totally outraged, <laughs> but I, I said, it's too late. I can't change it. Once you ship things on the web, it's very hard to change them. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to skip up and talk about 
So you got this thing going. It's JavaScript. It's it's successful. How many other people adopted it before you guys decided to give it to ECMA and let ECMA kind of standardize it? Mm. Netscape was the you know the hottest name and the, the sort of the name that put the browser and things like URLs and the web on the map. Wasn't Mosaic. We killed Mosaic, and then we were the hot thing for like a year and a half. And during that time, it was awesome because Microsoft was behind. Bill Gates realized that they made a mistake. They were doing sort of an AOL killer called Blackbird, which was like a proprietary content system for a dial-up network. And when Gates saw what was happening with Netscape, he said, we're going to lose unless we jump on this and you know embrace, extend, and extinguish it. They actually tried to buy Netscape in late 94, and they offered like 100 million or something paltry. So they were told to get lost. And that meant they went and cloned it, and everybody knew it. When I joined Netscape in April 95, it was like, we're doomed. People were just thinking Microsoft was inevitably going to kill the company. It was only a matter of time. And at that point, they'd acquired Spyglass, and they started, you know, sort of digesting the source code and then creating IE. I don't know if there was an IE1. IE2, IE3 in 1996. IE4 was coming out in 97 in, in like, pre-releases, preview releases. And that's when it got really good. So there was a, a real concern about Microsoft killing Netscape fast. But before that got huge, in late 96, they were putting moral pressure on Netscape. Like Bill Gates would say, Netscape keeps changing the semantics of JavaScript. And I'm like, oh, yeah, like you never did that to Visual Basic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like they didn't do it later on in IE. <laughs> if you follow Visual Basic, there's this crazy mistake they did where they blended it into .NET and they called Visual Fred or VB7, and it completely flopped. But even VB6 was like incompatible and weirdly different from previous versions. And I was like, pot kettle black, hello. But the pressure <laughs> through developers was enough. And the fact that they were coming, like Mike Homer, the marketing VP at Netscape said, the monster truck was like in our rear view mirror. Netscape's in its little Yugo, like the pedal to the metal, going topping out at 50 miles an hour, heading toward distant horizon. And behind us is this monster truck that's creeping up and it's it's kind of far away and it's a little dot and it's getting bigger. And suddenly it's it's like it's bumper. You can read the print on the bumper. And then you look ahead and you realize it isn't the horizon you're heading toward. It's a wall. <laughs> this is all Mike Homer's metaphor. And so what do you do when you're heading toward this wall? Ultimately, the executives decided to do Mosul.org. They said hard left and hope for you know somebody to survive. Don't let the monster truck run you into the wall. Release the Netscape source code as open source. But before that happened, that decision was like late 97, leading into you know, April 1st, 98. Before that happened, there was, let's standardize JavaScript. Okay, you know, we don't like the moral pressure from Microsoft. Hypocrites they are. We don't like being held to account for not standardizing the language. Let's take it somewhere. And so this guy, Netscape hired to be their standards guru named Carl Cargill. He said, I know how to do this. He was friends with Jan van den Bell, who was secretary general of a outfit called ECMA, recently called the European Computer Manufacturers Association, but they decided they wanted to be worldwide and the European was too limiting. So they said, it's not an acronym, it's a proper noun, capital E, lowercase CMA, ECMA. Mm -hmm. And so they, they started renaming themselves and saying, let's do software standards. And if you look on their sort of their core agenda of, of standards at the time, it had things like Fortran standards, and COBOL standards. These were all kind of long-standing ISO standards they kind of embraced or wrapped up, repackaged. They also did a bunch of novel standards based on optical disks at the time. So Philips was a big ECMA supporter. And getting into software with Netscape was good for them, so they went for it. Carl liked it because Microsoft didn't have any particular power with them. And in fact, ECMA, I think before Netscape did JavaScript through ECMA, ECMA had done de jure standardization of the Windows 3 API Windows 16-bit API, because the European governments, this was pre-EU, you know, had demanded that that be standardized since they were all dependent on it for their infrastructure um, using PCs. They said, we must have a standard for this. Microsoft wouldn't do it, so Agma did it based on sort of open knowledge, open docs and specs and man pages or whatever the equivalent Microsoft had was. And Microsoft actually sued them over that and lost, I think. So Carl thought, this is a great way to wrong put Microsoft. We'll take JavaScript to ECMA. And Jan van der Bell was a raconteur and a, you know, a very learned fellow. He was born, he's got a Belgian surname, or Dutch surname, actually, van der Bell. Dutch surname, born in Belgium, uh, lived in Geneva, knew everybody, 
we had great dinners out in Europe, I'll have to say that. When we went to standardize JavaScript in November 96 through June 97, when we finally finalized the standard in June, it was in Nice, and it, it was a, a, a good event. It had people from IBM, like Mike Kalashaw, IBM fellow, now retired. They had people from Borland, Microsoft, Netscape, other companies. Sun loaned Bill Joy, Bill G- sorry, uh, I'm saying Bill Joy, but I mean to say Guy Steele, total CS god from the Scheme era. Guy Steele and Jerry Sussman did Scheme. So that was like, I was in awe. It was, it was great to work with them. And, and Guy knew everything about like things like floating point. In fact, if you wanted to do floating point, number to string and string to number conversions, the canonical paper still is one by Guy Steele and David M. Gay on this. And there's still uh, like some C code that everyone uses. It's, it's like ugly 70s C code that David Gay wrote, but it's, it's the, the code to use for converting accurately because it turns out to be very hard to convert decimal strings of digits after the decimal point to binary fixed precision IEEE double you have to carry extra precision around to round correctly. So mm. that code and that standard um, was very helpful in, in ECMAScript. And Guy was was there. Uh, and Guy even brought Richard Gabriel, another Lisp god, also a poet, um, who was associated with Stanford at the time. I saw him at, at Oopslaw a few years ago, but I, I haven't kept up with Dick. But he was a lot of fun. He wrote Clause 3 of the ECMA standard, which is sort of the intro. It tells you about what JavaScript's about sort of objects and functions, you know, objects without classes. Wow. So AJ wants to know where the name Mozilla came from. <laughs> yes, I do want to know that. That's actually on the web. So if you read Jamie Zawinski's uh, many posts on his site, he named it based on the idea of a mosaic killer. When Netscape realized they weren't going to do Nintendo 64, you know, modem networked software, they said, let's do a mosaic killer. And Jamie started musing about mosaic killer you know, giant monster that kills mosaic, Godzilla, Mozilla. So that's where the name Mozilla came from. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> that is cool. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean, the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price to performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash adventures. I feel like I should explain more of the DOM level zero, like set timeout kind of wacky because people use the form that takes a function as the first argument and then it's awkward because you put the timeout in milliseconds after that and then if there are any arguments actual arguments to the function you pass them after the timeout so they're kind of interrupted by that timeout value the original version is that timeout netscape 2 did not have the function argument it only had a quoted string which was evaluated. so you wrote an expression to be evaluated in milliseconds and in Netscape 3, we added the function form. And at that point, it was too late to reorder the arguments because you can't break the web. And so that's why it's function timeout arguments. And you can still use the string form. I always thought that that was better anyway to put the function first because then it's composable. It's, it's a mixed bag, right? If you want to have something that sort of applies or does partial application, you end up having to juggle the timeout and the arguments list. But you can do it. So I have a question. Um, why, why did you make functions first-class citizens? So that was, people say JavaScript is inspired by self. There was very little self in fact because I had so little time. And self has, you know, like things like lexical scope. So you have no conflation of objects and scope ribs, which JavaScript had and has due to the global object and the width. But I did at least have the sense to make functions first-class, which self does and Lisp does. And I realized if I didn't do that, I hadn't, I didn't have much. I was in such a rush. I mean, it was 10 days till the demo in front of the engineering team. And I, I thought, how am I going to do this and make it useful? I had to lean on a very few concepts that were powerful. One was functions, and the other was enclosures were, were only sort of latently there in the very first version. The other was sort of objects you could create ad hoc. So functions were huge, and it, not making the first class meant I was going to have to lock them down and get it all right and make the the global object and built-in functions and the math object, make that all you know, perfect from the first release. And I knew there was no time to do that. I realized that I needed to allow people to mutate the environment. I needed to let everything be mutable 
in order to patch monkey patch polyfill polyfill i didn't see the whole you know evolution where people would actually anticipate sanders by polyfilling but i i did know that i could get it right and i had to leave it open it's basically one bit of, of decision logic do i make it open and immutable, you know, unsealed, or do I make it closed, locked down, unsealed? And I said, if I make it closed, I'm screwed. And in fact, Java's world was much more closed, and that, that hurt them. So you mentioned Java again. I just want to clarify, because I'm not sure I got my answer out of your uh, story. Did you call it <laughs> JavaScript just because Java was popular and you partnered with Sun? Like I said, Mark wanted to call it Mocha. I didn't care, except I liked Mocha because it was different. I didn't know of any prior art, but apparently there were software trademarks involving the name Mocha, but they were not related to a scripting language. So we could have, Netscape could have probably fought for Mocha. When they hired the marketing guy who said everything's going to be live script, we have LiveWire, which is like a server PHP-like project that would allow you to do sort of configuration management and simple database uh, query-based apps. It was very much like an early PHP. He wanted to call it LiveWire. So suddenly everything was live this and live that. And I was kind of throwing up my mouth a little bit. I didn't like that name at all. <laughs> so when they came around in December and got Bill Joy to sign the trademark license for JavaScript, I said, okay, I'm not sure this thing's going to make it because I was the only programmer working on it throughout 95. I was it. I had no support other than the part-time help from the front-end folks who did the you know, the form and the sort of presentational stuff that had to update when you have JavaScript poke at the DOM. And the DOM wasn't totally two-way. If you poked at certain things, it wouldn't update the, the online presentation. You couldn't do text ranges. You couldn't do arbitrary layout. You, you had to poke at text in a text area or a, a text input. So I, I was a little worried JavaScript wouldn't make it. And I thought if we're going to have some juice here, we might as well use JavaScript's juice. And also, I like the fact that Joyce on the trademark agreement because everybody else at Sun hated JavaScript and that really cheesed them off. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, nowadays, Sun, you mean Oracle, you mean... Nah, never mind. Some of the people there are still people uh, working there I know from the old days, like John Rose, who did like Nashorn and made sure Invoke Dynamic, which is what we would call like a jitted a polymorphic call site instruction, got into the JVM. So, you know, my hat's off to them. They're, they're like long old timers who want to keep evolving the JVM. And in fact, the JVM is a great VM. It has lots of languages like Clojure and Scala, but it's a server-side VM. There's no way it could have survived on the client. Some thought they had a shot when they took, after they saw JavaScript getting standardized successfully, they, they said, okay, we're going to take Java to ECMA. And this was like 98 or something like that. They sat down with Guy Steele again. They ordered Guy to go do his duty and standardize Java. And they had Microsoft for a time and others sitting around the table. Sam Ruby at IBM was there. And Guy said, okay, we have one year. We have 7,000 pages. We have 39 seconds per page. We have to go now. <laughs> and so we have to rubber stamp every page in the spec. And it didn't happen. That was not a good way to do it because there was too much to specify, not just the language, but the VM and sort of the memory model, which wasn't even fully understood then. I think Hans Bohm at HP Labs helped, had to help figure it out. And meanwhile, Microsoft decided they didn't want to play ball with Sun. And so at some point, they yanked Java from Windows, if you guys remember the history. And that led to something we all know and love called XML HTTP request, that because Outlook Web Access needed Java to do asynchronous like XML HTTP requests. Once Microsoft decided they were breaking up with Sun and they were going to yank Java and there was a lawsuit around that, that they needed a replacement for the Java async IO class. And so they just hacked in XHR. That's how XHR came about. It was totally based on this fight between Microsoft and Sun. It's so crazy because it's such a convoluted story. Yeah. I mean, you could imagine ways where XHR wouldn't exist, and then the web would be totally different. I'll tell you, having a hidden form or a link you click was a pain. XHR, for all its funkiness and you know crap like the synchronous option, it's better than what was there before. But all of it's kind of random. It's like evolutionary biology. You, you don't really get to choose. You just take what works, and you're lucky if you survive. So was XHR all of Microsoft's invention? It was, but again, it was cloned. It was kind of filling a vacuum that was left when they kicked Java out and they needed to keep Outlook Web Access working. So you know, some of it had the sort of flavor of Microsoft and Visual Basic informed API. Some of it was based pretty closely on the Java async IO class that they booted. Did you ever look at this like baby that you created and 
at certain points wonder if something was going to kill it off, like, say, Flash, for example. Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> first of all, I was kind of done working on as a lone gun on it. I had some help. Ricardo Henez is working on some kind of Hadoop startup now with friends I know from Yahoo, like Remy Stata. I forget the name of the company, but Ricardo came in to help me. He he ported the David Gay floating point number to string and back code. And, and early on, there was a guy named Ken Smith from Netscape acquired from Borland who did the date object based directly on JDK 1.0, the Java Developer Kit 1.0 version of Java Util Date. So all that crap people hate about the data object, like months are numbered from one, a number from, a number from one in, in normal human calendars, but are indexed from zero in the Java till date API and therefore in the Java yep. date object. People hate that. The Y2K bugs, get year instead of get full year, a two-digit date offset from 1900, <laughs> that was all from Java. And it was like a Y2K bug. It was like an office space. <laughs> that came directly from Java. It was Ken Smith basically transliterating, transporting C code implementing, or, or Java code implementing Java Util Date into JavaScript or into the C, C part of the engine that implemented the data object. Uh, but other than those guys helping out sort of on pieces, I had no help. Until late 96, one of the Netscape founders, Chris Hauck, decided to join me and I felt pressure in joining the ECMA group to make the language cleaner. So I started to rewrite the VM, pay off technical debt, and I wrote, became SpiderMonkey. The original Mocha VM was not SpiderMonkey. It was much slower. It was a rust job. When I rewrote it as SpiderMonkey, I had a garbage collector. I had things that I thought were better done. I had tagged values, sort of machine words with low-order bits that told you what the type was. I took two weeks away from work where the VP in charge of me was saying, you better get in here. We're trying to standardize this. You have to write a language back. And I said, no, get lost. I'm re-implementing it. Um, I have to implement it before I specify it because it really was based on the code. It was based on what, what actually shipped. It wasn't a matter of writing down some platonic perfect JavaScript because there wasn't any such thing. It was all about what actually was in Netscape 2 or 3 at that point. And so the JavaScript engine got rewritten in 96, and that finally shipped in Netscape 4 in 97 or 98. And that helped me keep my sort of my head up in the JavaScript um, standards body, the ECMA TC39 group. Because the first meeting of that group, even though our guru, Carl Cargill, had thought we would have the advantage inside ECMA, Microsoft sent in a lot of people. Now, they were kind of the B team. So they, one of the guys was funny. He actually made the joke that I've used since then that, well, we can't really call it JavaScript. That's a Sun trademark. And Sun was, you know, suing people whose surname was Javanko, like a middle European last name. They were saying, <laughs> this guy, this guy is on the web. He's got his website called Javanko.com and it's named after his ancestors going back to, you know, thousands of years. And some lawyers come up and say, you must cease and desist using the name Javanko. It's not your name. It starts with J-A-V-A. It's our name. And he said, get out of here. It's my ancestor's name. So Sun was stupid. They didn't want to give the name away to the standards body. So ECMA said, oh, we'll call it ECMAScript. And one of the Microsoft guys, I forget his name, said, that's not a really good name. It sounds like a skin disease. (laughs) (laughs) And and he was right. Yeah. But because I was actually re-implementing and I was kind of all over the language semantics, I easily defeated them in these various little debates about how to standardize it. And there was a wacky guy from Borland who thought he'd implemented JavaScript and he had it all differently implemented, not interoperably implemented, because he wasn't building a browser. And there was this company called Nombus, no MBAs, that was founded by the son of Ray Norda, who was running Novell at the time. And they they said, oh, we've been doing JavaScript for years. And I said, really? I only created it last year. How can you be doing it for years? And what they meant was they were doing it like a C-like scripting language. And, of course, all the details, all the detailed semantics differed. But we finally got the committee to codify mostly what was shipped in Netscape. Microsoft, after that first meeting where they didn't send their A-team, sent their A-team. And that was Sean Katzenberger. He's very smart. He went to work on .NET with Andrews Helsberg after that. And he actually told his bosses, he, he did what I did only more so, he told them to get lost. And he spent like six months working on what became the first uh, edition of ECMAScript as a spec. And Guy Steele did a fair amount of work and others contributed pieces. But Sean did the sort of backbone and the main part of the work. Six months to work on the, what became the first edition of ECMAScript. And he came up with this formalism for the data object because the Java-based data object was crazy. He, he just said, let's make an extrapolated Gregorian calendar. It goes plus or minus 200,000 years because we have that much accuracy, precision within IEEE double if you count milliseconds. 
and he was he was very smart. He he did a good job and didn't really seek advantage. There were a few things that I thought that he wanted to push that weren't right, but he, it turns out I, I dug through a mail archive when I met him, and I realized he'd mailed me <laughs> months earlier, like in 96, saying, hey, there are things in JavaScript. Maybe you can change them quickly before it gets too hard to change on the web. And when I found that mail, I realized I'd skipped it quickly because I realized I couldn't change it even then. Like Mark Andreessen tells the story that NCSA had like 80 web servers in the whole world, including CERN, the original web servers from Tim Berners-Lee, and they couldn't change anything. So Netscape 2 beta, we shipped JavaScript and LiveScript. And even then, with early adopters writing code, that contractor with his demo I helped rescue, you couldn't change it. So this is survival advantage to keeping compatibility. And it's real. And that affected us all the way through this. And it affected Microsoft, too. So once here's the punchline. When I redid the implementation and created SpiderMonkey, I said, I'm the double equal operator. I was, I was being spun around by the Borland guys who wanted very loose, implicit conversions. I was looking at Pro 4, which had all sorts of crazy. That was a mistake. I want a real equivalence relation, except for you know man's. I want something where you have a reflexive, uh, transitive operator. And it partitions all values into equivalence classes, which are as small as possible. Let's make the double equal operator be like what we know as the triple equal operator. And I said, I know it's incompatible. I'll have people call it JavaScript 1.2 and they'll have to opt into it. They'll say script type equals application JavaScript 1.2. Microsoft guy said, uh, well, you're right. You can't do this like without any type equals opt in. And nobody's going to use the opt-in or they're going to get it wrong, so it's too late. Let's just add triple equal. So that's what we did. Even mm. then, it was impossible to fix mistakes in the language. This was 96, 97. So mm. why'd you call it Spider Monkey? <laughs> There's a Wikipedia page, which obviously somebody from Netscape has over-edited because it half explains this, but it doesn't quite link to the correct explanation. If you look for Beavis and Butthead Tom Anderson, <laughs> Spider Monkey, <laughs> you'll, okay. be, you'll be enlightened. All right. The name was given by Chris Hauk, Netscape co-founder. So, kind of, I want to go back to this ECMA thing. I watched some talks at Yahoo where you and Douglas Crockford both gave two different explanations of this falling out, and I think that you compared it to the Lord of the Rings. Oh, this was like the fourth edition falling out. The yeah, disc. yeah, yeah. Right. And he compared it to something like the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, didn't he? No, that was me. Also. Okay. <laughs> That was my TXJS 2010 talk, I think. Okay. So, yeah, Doug, I don't know, Doug didn't have a good metaphor for it. I made it the Lord of the Rings. I actually had lots of fun trying to find Doug's avatar. I started with Yoda, but I realized he was too short, and I said it has to be Gandalf, and so it was Gandalf. He was like on the bridge of Khazad-dum, fighting the Balrog, the ES4 rog, and the hobbits were oh, like... The JS hobbits were being defended from having to use this horrible, classy, fancy, complicated language. ES4 was an attempt. It was several things. It was an attempt by Macromedia and then Adobe, which bought Macromedia, to standardize the fork of JavaScript called ActionScript that they put in the Flash player. And they, they actually done two versions. One was ActionScript. Maybe they done three. The original ActionScript, now ActionScript 1, was pretty much JavaScript. Probably some minor differences. ActionScript 2... Had a few more things, but was still mostly a dynamic language. And then ActionScript 3, implemented by the Tamarin engine that they finally open sourced through Mozilla in late 2006, was quite different. It had classes, packages, namespaces, types, optional type annotations, machine types. You could do in 32 And it felt like they were responding to a lot of Java Envy or Java Angst among their sort of Java-trained developers in the Flex Flash world of, of 2006 or seven, And they wanted to standardize that through ECMA as a sequel to the third edition of ECMAScript. I wanted to get Microsoft to play ball and evolve JavaScript as it was. When I started Mozilla and started Firefox, and we launched Firefox 1 in November 9th, 2004, I realized this was going to restart browser competition, so I rejoined ECMA on behalf of the Mozilla Foundation as a not-for-profit member, which was awesome because you don't have to pay, <laughs> and then started collaborating with Macromedia, soon to be Adobe because they bought it Macromedia, to evolve JavaScript. And we did, as a warm-up, we did E4X, which was this crazy XML syntax inside JavaScript that was done by BEA, if you remember them, they were sort of a Java app server company. And John Schneider, then at BEA, who had been at Microsoft, and his buddies at Microsoft, like Rock Yu, who was actually 
running the ECMA liaison for Microsoft, decided, let's do E4X. So we did this ECMA 357 standard that tried to standardize ECMAScript for XML. It was an add-on to the JavaScript standard, and it put XML literals into the language. It also put namespaces in, including the double colon qualifier to separate the namespace from the name. All sorts of crazy stuff. And it had lots of foot guns, in my opinion. It was very much based on an implementation that was done in Java on Rhino, the Mozilla Java implementation of JavaScript. And it became a dead standard, ultimately. It wasn't really implemented by anybody else, not even by Microsoft. But Microsoft, for a time, there was talking a good game. They had said, while well, Netscape was still alive, yes, we'll do JavaScript 2. And yes, it will be classy. It will have classes and packages and namespaces. And they even implemented some of those things, their own spin on them, in JScript.net in 2000 era. And you can find web pages to this day that talk about JScript.net and classes in JavaScript. But they backed off on it when they got serious about C Sharp and they kind of reneged on the whole thing. And they also, other than Rock Yu, this fellow who's left Microsoft since then long ago, but he was a fun guy. He was the liaison to the ECMAScript standards body and he was doing E4X even though he was not selling it inside Microsoft and nobody was implementing it. So I used E4X as a, a lever to get Microsoft's engagement and attention and to get JavaScript standards body back in business. So we reformed what was basically disbanded in 2003. Microsoft had crushed Netscape in the browser wars. Um, the Mozilla Foundation was spun up in summer 2003 from an AOL layoff. And the person I'd given the keys to the kingdom for JavaScript to, Waldemar Horwat, uh, Netscape, very smart guy. I think he won the Putnam math exam in 1986. If you know what that is, that's pretty impressive. Watermore was from MIT. He was a PhD. He was working on a Java virtual machine. This was not the original early days. He was going to do a full jitting, like hotspot style JVM at Netscape in 97 called Electrical Fire. But Netscape was running out of money because Microsoft was killing them by taking the price of the browser to zero and also doing a better job on the server side. Netscape could never make server business pay. Watermore was looking for a job. So in late 97, I said, hey, why don't you take over JavaScript and standardize it and take it to the next level. So Watermore worked on JS2 or early ES4, what you might call as primitive ES4. And you can still find his design documents in the web archive on this. And that fed into, in its own way, 